Baldur was one of the most beloved of all the gods. The son of Odin, the chief of the gods, and the benevolent sorcerer's goddess Frigg. Baldur was a generous, joyful, and courageous character who gladdened the hearts of all who spent time with him. And therefore he began to have ominous dreams of some grave misfortune befalling him. The fearful gods appointed Odin to discover their meaning. Baldur's father wasted no time in mounting his steed Sleipnir and riding to the underworld to consult a dead Cirrus, whom he knew to be especially wise in such matters. When in one of his countless disguises he reached the cold and misty underworld, he found the halls arrayed in splendor, as if some magnificent feast were about to occur. Odin woke the seeress and questioned her concerning this festivity. She responded that the guest of honor was to be none other than Baldur. She merrily recounted how the god would meet his doom, stopping only when she realized from the desperate nature of Odin's inquiries who this disguised wanderer truly was. And indeed, all that she prophesied would come to pass. Odin returned in sorrow to Asgard, the god's celestial stronghold, and told his companions what he had been told. Frigg, yearning for any chance of saving her treasured son, however remote, went to every entity in the cosmos, living or non-living, and obtained oaths to not harm Baldur. After these oaths were secured, the gods made a sport out of the situation. They threw sticks, rocks, and anything else on hand at Baldur, and everyone laughed as these things bounced off and left the shining god unharmed. The wily and disloyal Loki sensed an opportunity for mischief. In disguise, he went to Freak and asked her, Did all things swear oaths to spare Baldur from harm? Oh yes, the goddess replied. Everything except the mistletoe. But the mistletoe is so small and innocent a thing that I felt it superfluous to ask it for an oath. What harm could it do to my son? Immediately upon hearing this, Loki departed. He located the mistletoe, carved a spear, and brought it to where the gods were playing their new favorite game. He approached the blind god Hodir and said, you must feel quite left out having to sit back here away from the merriment. Not being a chance to show Baldur the honor of proving his invincibility. The blind god concurred. Here, said Loki, handing him the shaft of mistletoe. I will point your hand in the direction where Baldur stands, and you throw this branch at him. So Hodir threw the mistletoe pierced the god straight through, and he fell down dead on the spot. The god
gods found themselves unable to speak as they trembled with anguish and fear. They knew this event was the first presage of Ragnarok. The downfall and death, not just of themselves, but of the very cosmos they maintained. At last, Frigg composed herself enough to ask if there were any among them who were brave, loyal, and compassionate enough to journey to the land of the dead and offer Hel, the death goddess, a ransom for Balter's release. Ermod, an obscure son of Odin, offered to undertake this mission. Odin instructed Sleipnir to bear Ermod to the underworld, and off he went. The gods arranged a lavish funeral for their fallen friend. They turned Baldur's ship Ringorni into a pyre fitting for a great king. When the time came to launch the ship out to sea, however, the gods found the ship stuck in the sand and themselves unable to force it to budge. After many failed attempts, they summoned the brawniest being in the cosmos, a certain giantess named Irokin. Irokin arrived in Asgard, riding a wolf and using poisonous snakes for reins. She dismounted, walked to the prow of the ship, and gave it such a mighty push that the land quaked as Ringorni was freed from the strand. As Baldur's body was carried onto the ship, his wife Nyana was overcome with such great grief that she died there on the spot and was placed on the pyre alongside her husband. The fire was kindled, and Thor hallowed the flames by holding his hammer over them. Odin laid upon the pyre his ring Draupnir, and Baldur's horse was led into the flames. All kinds of beings from throughout the Nine Worlds attended this ceremony. Gods, giants, elves, dwarves, Valkyries, and many others. Together they stood and mourned as they watched the burning ship disappear over the ocean. Meanwhile, Ermod rode nine nights through ever darker and deeper valleys on his quest to rescue the part of Baldur that had been sent to Hel. When he came to the river Jorl, Modgud, the giantess who guards the bridge, asked him his name and his purpose, adding that it was strange that his footfalls were as thundering as those of an entire army especially since his face still had the color of the living. He answered to her satisfaction, and she allowed him to cross over into Hel's realm. Sleipnir leapt over the wall around that doleful land. Upon entering and dismounting, Ermod spotted Hel's throne, and Baldur, pale and downcast, sitting in the seat of honor next to her. Ermod spent the night there, and when morning came, he pleaded with Hel 
to release his brother, telling her of the great sorrow that all living things, and especially the gods, felt for his absence. Hell responded, If this is so, then let everything in the cosmos weep for him, and I will send him back to you. But, if any refuse, he will remain in my presence. Hermod rode back to Asgard and told these tidings to the gods, who straightway sent messengers throughout the worlds to bear this news to all of their inhabitants. And indeed, everything did weep for Baldur. Everything that is, save for one giantess, Tok, who was none other than Loki in another disguise. Tok coldly told the messengers, Let hell hold what she has. And so Baldur was condemned to remain in hell's darkness, dampness, and cold. Never again would he grace the lands of the living with his gladdening light and exuberance. And thus the first step of Ragnarok had been fulfilled. to picture a little scenario here. You live in a small town by the river. You and a lot of your neighbors have lived and grown up here. Your great-grandparents settled in this little town by the river. And across this river is another little small town. And you have a lot of friends there too. Their ancestors have lived here since long before your great-grandparents came over. When they wanted to settle here, there was, let's just say, a bit of a big disagreement between your grandparents' group and the people who were already here. And after some aggressive negotiations, the two sides agreed to live together on opposite sides of the river. Some of your grandparents even started adopting some of the cultural customs and the religion of the first peoples. The customs your grandparents came over with are slowly being forgotten because they started to like these new ones better. Give it a few more generations and the descendants of your grandparents will be almost indistinguishable between themselves and the first peoples because you have virtually the same customs and religion. And so you have this little holiday coming up. It's a religious holiday. Everyone is looking forward to it. You and your neighbors have been getting ready for the celebrations, getting food and drink ready for the occasion. You're even going to celebrate with some of your friends from across the river. 
You've been talking with them almost every day when you pass each other on the bridge to do business in each other's towns. That whole, what should I bring? What are you bringing? Well, how about you bring this and I'll bring that? That sort of thing. The holiday arrives, and your town has been having a good time. Lots of eating, drinking, and telling stories. The evening comes, and you're sitting in your home with your family. Your friends from across the river didn't make it to the celebration like you talked about, but you think, well, maybe something happened over there, and they couldn't make it this time. No big deal. You and the rest of the family starting to get tired and think, eh, it's about time to go to sleep. You hear a noise outside. It almost sounded like someone hollering. Yelling, even. Screaming. You start to go to the door to see what it is, but before you can even open the door, it's kicked open from the outside. You see your friends from across the river, but they don't look so friendly. They're all holding weapons and grab you and drag you outside. As you're being drugged across the lawn, you see your neighbors lying on the ground and all of their heads have been severed from their bodies. You look up and ask why. Why are you doing this? And the answer you get just before you're executed is something like, it's been a long time coming, heathen. Now before I get going, I just want you to know that I made up that little piece of fiction. But something like this may have actually happened, and that's something that we're going to get to. And it's also been a minute since I put out an episode. It was early May, I think. Finishing up the last two, what I would consider to be the big pieces of my Viking Age coverage. It's been bugging me like you wouldn't believe. I want to get it done. Been reading what I can and listening to other historians or, like myself, history enthusiasts to take on what I'm about to cover. And the scope of this episode has expanded on me more than once and forced me to sort of start over multiple times. It was originally going to be another profile piece covering King Canute, who we will most definitely be getting to in this episode. But again, the scope and context of this point in history in the Viking Age had me sort of recapping what has led us here and reflecting a bit. And then, I guess you could call it a question or a thought that came to me. What are the long-term consequences or effects of one person's actions on the course of history? This brought me to an event that takes place a few years before King Canute even took the political or world stage. But then when I thought about why this event happened, it kept all tracing back to the beginning of the age to Ragnar. Now hear me out. Number one, as I pointed out and made my case in the episode dedicated to him, I believe that he was a real figure. But second, and more importantly, 
his actions set the stage for the next two to three hundred years. And this is important to explain what comes next. I need to sort of quickly recap what has happened till now. Ragnar Lodbrok, the famous Viking sea king who ransacked England and Paris and Ireland. He's kind of, you could think of him as like the, the hometown hero. Not necessarily a king who ruled an entire nation, although he may have been one of those several kings in the Viking world, you know, ruled a, a little section of Norway, maybe. But the point being, he's someone that everyone in the Norse world would look to or hear about and could say something to the effect of, yeah, that's, that's our guy. He represents us. His making a name for himself also to some extent began to make a name for the Norse world. But then the hometown hero, Ragnar, is killed. It's also funny how things conveniently work out because that intro about Baldur that I had just recorded prior to this realization, Ragnar in a way is like Baldur in the sense that he was beloved by almost everyone from his homeland and his death triggered a series of events that would lead to the end. The first in response to his death is an army led by his sons that sails to England, destroying three of its kingdoms, and also provided an opportunity for a young Rolo to make a name for himself here before going and establishing what we know of as Normandy and a new royal bloodline. Now we're going to set Rolo's line to the side for the moment, but if, if you're a note-taker, just jot something down to remember that his descendants will show back up in the story. But back to the recap with the great heathen army. The peace is made when it is all said and done, dividing England in half between the kingdom of Wessex and the smaller kingdoms that serve it in western England, and the Dane law, the eastern half occupied by the Norse. So there is sort of, let's just call it, peace, starting around the year 878. The conflict between the Saxons and the Danes is at an all-time low. As the generations go by, some intermingling between the Saxons and the Danes begins to take place. The Danes running the Dane law, understanding that the Saxons who lived there prior to the Norse occupation were Christian, while many of them were still pagan, they still allowed the Saxons living in the Danelaw to practice their religion. A fairly stable coexistence like this will go by for a little more than 120 years. So here we come to our current situation. What's the state of things over that 120 years? While no one from the Danelaw was attacking Wessex, that didn't stop the Danes, the Vikings from outside the Danelaw, from elsewhere, to attack these towns. The King of Wessex at this time is a guy named Athelred, sometimes called the Unready or Ill-Advised. Athelred looks around at the situation not just in Wessex and England, but across Europe. He sees that these Vikings in one way, shape, or form have entrenched themselves as mainstays in all these European countries, so it's becoming 
a little dangerous for a king who isn't exactly a fan of the Norse. He makes a few moves to try to fix this. One of those is that he marries Emma of Normandy. The Normans are a relatively new state, or faction if you want to call it that, but they're the Vikings that were blended together with the Franks and became a new sort of, I guess you could call it refined Viking. You know, a bit more diplomatic. Emma is also the great-granddaughter of Rollo, the founder of Normandy. So, Athelred has an alliance with the Normans due to his marriage to Emma, but they sort of just agree to leave Athelred alone and would only come and help him if the situation were dire. This still leaves the problem of the Danes and the Vikings coming from Scandinavia. Initially, what Athelred does is a smart move because, as we said, Viking raids on port towns have started to sort of spring up again. One particular raid in the year 994 was co-led by Olaf Tryggvason and a guy named Svein Forkbeard. Athelred made a separate peace with Olaf by paying a very enormous amount of money, something in the vein of 20 to 25,000 pounds of gold. The agreement was that Olaf would not only leave England, but would agree to come back and help Athelred fight off any future attacks from other Viking raids. So Olaf left England and went back to Norway to make use of all of this newly acquired wealth. He bought himself a large, loyal following that he could continue to pay for a long period of time. On top of that, he was able to make himself king of Norway. This is all fine and dandy for Olaf, but it kind of left another person in a bit of an awkward position. That would be Swain. Or Svein. Svein wasn't included in this deal, or was he offered any such deal by Athelred? The forces of Svein go back to Denmark, because Olaf kind of abandoned him because he got paid, and Svein wasn't exactly in a position to raid. He didn't have the he didn't have the numbers he would have needed. So not a bad move on Athelred's part to put Svein in this position. Now an interesting thing to point out is that not all of um, Olaf's forces left England. Several of the captains stayed behind and Athelred not only agreed to hire them but he made them into nobles. They were no longer Vikings but Danes. He gave them land and wealth. He made them part of the aristocracy furthering his defense against future attacks. One of these captains was a man named Palig Toksen. Palig was from Denmark and was married to a woman named Gunhild. Something to remember here in a minute. On paper, this seemed like a good strategy to defend Wessex. Although I guess you could debate whether or not the paying of that hefty sum of gold to Olaf was in some sense humiliating to Athelred. Except for when the time comes to see if the Danes that you paid for are worth the efforts that you put into it, Svein Forkbeard would come back 
Monterey de Coastal Town and the former captains, that are now Wessex nobles, are called to go to the town and defend it from Spain. But what ends up happening is that Spain talks to these guys because he knows them. He's raided with them before. And he convinces them, probably saying something like, you know it'd be a lot more profitable to take the money from the town and come back a while later than what Athelred is paying you guys? Something like that. So most of the captains switch sides again and go with Svein. They take the wealth from the town, burn a couple of buildings and rough up a few people. They don't want to destroy the town because they want to come back later. You know, that's the Viking method. Athelred hears this and does not take it well at all. Which, how would you feel if you hired a bodyguard to protect you from someone and that very same bodyguard you hired ends up siding with the guy you needed protection from in the first place? Athelred decides to solve this little problem of untrustworthiness by dealing with it on a large scale. So you remember that scenario that I told you at the top of the show about the two villages on opposite sides of the river? Well, here's where I based that from. Athelred's plan will occur on an upcoming holiday known as St. Bryce's Day. November 13th, 1002. That day comes, and a decree from King Athelred is issued. A decree that was basically an ethnic cleansing. He called for the execution of all Danes within his kingdom. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle states that, quote, And in the year the king ordered that all Danish men who were in England to be slain. This was done on St. Bryce's feast day because it was made known to the king that they treacherously wanted to deprive him and then all of his counselors of life and to possess his kingdom thereafter. End quote. Something clearly happened for it to be remembered at all. This event is still debated to this day as to the extent of the massacre. The old saying goes that the winners write the history, and all we really have are Anglo-Saxon sources to refer to, and the Norse sagas don't really make any reference to it, likely because they didn't want to celebrate their own people being slaughtered. The argument is made that King Athelred made it literal, and that only Danish men were to be killed in this order, and that it wasn't a number high enough to justify calling it a massacre. But, between archaeological finds recently, and other tertiary sources, an argument can be made that the number was indeed higher and that it may have been more than just the men who were killed in this event. In 2008 and 9, in the towns of Oxford and Dorset, two Viking mass graves were found. Carbon dating on the skeletal remains places them at the time of the massacre. The remains found at Oxford counted 37 males and two who were too young to be identified. The ages of the 37 men were, they were estimated to be about 16 to 25 years old. One skeleton shows successful decapitation, while five others show 
unsuccessful decapitation. They couldn't quite lop the heads off of those other guys. Kind of makes you wonder what it had to be like in that moment. Likely cornered and looking on as your kinsman's head is still partially attached to his body because his Saxon executioner can't quite get the job done. But he was probably happy to keep working at it. 27 of the heads of these men were broken. The back and pelvic muscles were cracked or broken in 20 of them. Broken ribs for others. Stab marks along almost all of them. Quite a few of these remains have signs of charring showing that they were burned. It should be noted that these remains were also not far from the Oxford Church where the men sought shelter from their attackers. The Dorset gravesite uncovered another 50 people, all decapitated. Their skulls put in one pile, and the bodies in another. I'd also like to point out that they mentioned that more bodies than skulls were found. This gives the implication that some of these skulls were placed on stakes or spikes. Also, no fabrics were found, meaning that the victims were stripped naked before being beheaded. One important distinction to be made between the remains at Dorset versus the ones at Oxford. The Oxford remains had old battle scars showing that the men who were killed there were fighters. They had seen battles long before they were massacred. The remains at Dorset, on the other hand, did not, giving a strong implication that they were civilians. The remains at Oxford are all but confirmed because of a royal charter put out by King Athelred two years after the massacre saying that he will rebuild the church that was burnt down, that contained all these Danish men, these, these Vikings. Athelred's charter says this, quote, For it is fully agreed that to all dwelling in this country it will be well known that, since a decree was sent out by me with the counsel of my leading men and magnates, to the effect that all Danes who had sprung up in this island sprouting like cockle amongst the wheat, were to be destroyed by a most just extermination. And thus this decree was to be put into effect even as far as death. Those Danes who dwelt in the aforementioned town, striving to escape death, entered this sanctuary of Christ, having broken by force the doors and bolts, and resolved to make refuge and defense for themselves therein against the people of the town and the suburbs. But when all the people in pursuit strove, forced by necessity to drive them out, and could not, they set fire to the planks and burnt, as it seems this church with its ornaments and its books. Afterwards, with God's aid, it was renewed by me." End quote. He's kind of bragging about this. At least that's the way I'm reading it. On top of all this, Athelred also kills the Danish captains who were still loyal to him. You'll remember a few minutes ago I made a point to tell you who one of these captains, Palig, and his wife Gunhild, as well as their child, were killed in the massacre. Why do I bring back up Palig and especially Gunhild? Well, Gunhild was the sister 
of Svein Forkbeard, the other Viking lord who by this point is now king of Denmark. You'll remember that Svein already didn't really care for Athelred from his uh, earlier encounters when he wasn't offered any sort of deal, but now his sister is dead on top of many of his people. And Svein Forkbeard is not someone with whom you want to have Deda. Now not only have you given him a cause, but a personal family reason why he is coming for you, if you're Athelred in this case. Svein was tutored under a group of Vikings, an order, if you will, known as the Yams Vikings, in their semi-mythical castle of Yamsborg. If you want an idea of what kind of force these people were, think of them as the Viking equivalent of the Myrmidons. The Myrmidons were the elite fighting force of Achilles. Not just anyone could be part of Achilles' group. You had to be an exceptional person to join in the first place. And the Yams Vikings were no different. Svein was trained by one of the Order's founders, a Viking named Palnatok. Entry into the Yams Vikings isn't exactly easy. You have to already have some sort of renown or have proved your valor. Membership was also restricted to men between the ages of 18 and 50. Now, Svein did have the benefit of his father, Harald Bluetooth, being a king of Denmark, and that gained him, you could call it an application. In the case of royalty applying, the feat of valor would be provided. Svein would have to win a duel in order to even be trained. But no special treatment was given to Svein just because of his father. His opponent did try to beat him. Svein won this duel and was then permitted to join the Yams Vikings and properly train. And the sagas speak of the Yams Vikings and tell of their strict code its members had to adhere to. It goes something like this, quote, Once admitted, the Yams Vikings required adherence to a strict code of conduct in order to instill a sense of military discipline among its members. Any violation of these rules could be punished with immediate expulsion from the order. Each Yams Viking was bound to defend his brothers, as well as to avenge their deaths if necessary. He was forbidden to speak ill of his fellows or to quarrel with them. Blood feuds between members were to be mediated by Yams Viking officers. Yams Vikings were forbidden to show fear or to flee in the face of an enemy of equal or inferior strength. Though orderly retreat in the face of vastly outnumbering forces appears to have been an acceptable option. All spoils of battle were to be equally distributed among the entire brotherhood. No Yams Viking was permitted to be absent from Yamsborg for more than three days without the permission of the brotherhood. No women or children were allowed within the fortress walls, and none were to be taken captive." End quote. They were strict about women and children not being taken captive. So now imagine someone who has been trained by this order, whose people, fellow Vikings, Danes, women, children, how's he going to respond to the St. Bryce's Day massacre? What is his reaction? 
And for that matter, what is the reaction of the whole Scandinavian world when word of the massacre reaches them? I'm going to play a clip for you here from the show Vikings Valhalla, where the show kicks off in response to the St. Bryce's Day Massacre. The speech being given in the show is by King Canute, the son of Svein Forkbeard. Historically, it would be more likely that Svein would have given the speech, but it's a show, and I think it still highlights the sentiment in the Viking world at that time. friends over a hundred years ago a great viking army set off for england to avenge the death of ragnar lothbrok it achieved its goal and after many great victories our people were invited to settle into communities there with time we sent our loved ones to live and work there. The Danelaw became their home. A year ago, all that changed. And a slaughter began. A massacre. Unknown in the long history of our people. An attack. Not warrior to warrior, but waged on innocent women and children. Waged for only one reason. To cleanse England of our people. You have been summoned here for a purpose. To avenge the death of our people. And to show the English that they cannot murder Vikings and expect us to do nothing. <laughs> our ancestors would not. Ivar the Boneless and Bjorn Ironside would not. I will not. Will you? Something that I like about that clip is that Canute invokes his people's earlier history by bringing up Ragnar, as well as Ivar and Bjorn, these heroes of the past. But it holds a little extra meaning for Canute in the show and for Svein, where I'm currently up to in my coverage here. Their lineage goes all the way back to Sigurd's Snake in the Eye, who was also a son of Ragnar. It's their bloodline. Ragnar is their great ancestor. So whether you're going by the show with Canute or by what I'm going over here with Svein, this family has a lot of history with England. The difference this time 
is that it's more than just a hero who has been slain. It's innocent people. Couple that with Svein's sister being killed and you have the cause for the next round of invasions to begin in England. So Svein's first move is to negotiate with Duke Richard II of Normandy, allowing Svein's ships safe passage should they sail to or by Normandy, protecting essentially their southern flank. Richard agrees as long as Svein and his army sell any spoils they gain to Normandy. Svein was more than happy with that deal, and this deal was pretty easy to accomplish because the Normans are a Norse-descended faction. Richard's grandfather was Rollo. So with the southern waters secured, Svein begins his invasions of England. Initially though, they aren't successful. He's campaigning in East Anglia in Wessex for a couple years until a famine forces him to go home to Denmark. He keeps coming back and continues with at least raids for the next few years until an opportunity presents itself for him to launch another proper invasion. His opportunity will come in the year 1013 and he will have a little bit of help which is where I'm going to need to roll the clock back just a few years and talk about that help, and finally get to who I've been wanting to talk about this whole time, Svein's son, Canute. So with Svein seeking revenge for his sister and the St. Bryce's Day Massacre, he wasn't exactly a present father, being constantly away to England invading or raiding and Canute needed a father figure to teach him how to be a man. So it's kind of hard for Svein to do that if he's not exactly there. Canute's religious beliefs were instilled early on thanks to his grandfather, Harald Bluetooth, who was the first Scandinavian king to adopt Christianity, and this helped Denmark transition away from the old gods, although it's still a bit of a process going on, still large swaths of the people of Denmark are still pagan. But Canute was brought up as a Christian. And while Canute's religious beliefs were secured, he still needed that father figure to teach him how to be a man, to fight, to think, and to lead. And since Svein knew he was not going to be a present father to Canute, he had him sent to Jomsborg to train with the Yom's Vikings as he did. A brief mention of Canute's life is mentioned in a saga known as the Flatjetarbuk. My pronunciation is probably horrible as usual, but I try what I try as I can. It mentions that he was trained by one of the leaders of the Yom's Vikings, again similar to how Svein was, except this time it was Thorkel the Tall. It's claimed that Thorkel was the tallest Viking, although I am kind of curious as to how tall he was in comparison to Rollo, who was known for his height. Anyway, the training that Thorkel would put Canute through was of such an intensity that Canute would be ready to fight as early as his mid-teens. 
Another saga about Knut, called the Knutstrapa, states that he was, quote, of no great age when he first went to war, end quote. So in the year 1012, Thorkel would take Knut with him to raid in England. By now, Knut has heard the story several times from Thorkel and the other Yom's Vikings, as well as his father Svein, the times when he did return home, of what happened on the St. Bryce's Day Massacre. Thorkel and Knut caused enough of a disruption in England that an opportunity for another large-scale invasion was open, and Svein would reach out to Thorkel and Knut and propose a joint effort in invading England. They would agree, and Knut would join his father Svein in 1013. They started by landing in the Humber, which at this point would still be part of the Danelaw. Svein and company established a large base at Gainsborough, which is an inland port along the Trent River. The northwestern part of England is going to quickly submit to Svein, and then something happens that I just don't understand why it happened. Thorkel the Tall switches sides and joins Athelred. Thorkel was bribed to switch sides, but to me it doesn't make sense why you would take a bribe from a side that is clearly going to get rolled over. Especially since a few years earlier, Thorkel had raided England and captured not just a bishop, but an archbishop, and killed him as part of a drunken feast. Now, one theory as to why Thorkel would have defected is to do the same as Rollo and join the royalty and conquer from within. Difference here is that at least with Rollo and the Franks, the Franks were at least able to defend Paris, whereas the Saxon kingdoms and territories seemed to fall quickly any time someone came through, Viking or Saxon. Now, on top of the St. Bryce's Day Massacre and the death of his sister, this just adds another reason for Svein to conquer England to do so before Thorkel did. Svein would go and attack London, but was able to be held off by Athelred and Thorkel. But Svein did something that should seem obvious, but not as many leaders in history do this as you would think. Rather than waste his time besieging London, he continued south and took the rest of the country leaving London isolated. London would send Svein hostages so that he wouldn't attack again, and this allowed Athelred to flee to Normandy, the homeland of his wife Emma. Svein was now the ruler of all England. Fate would have other plans, however. Just five weeks after Svein took the country, and also, mind you, most of the country is actually happy that Svein is in charge now instead of Athelred. But just five weeks after his big victory, 
Svein would die. Most of what I read simply states that a few weeks after conquering England, he simply dies without really giving a reason. I found one source saying that a report says he died after an apparently nasty fall from his horse. Take that how you will. But now England and Denmark's king, Svein, is dead. Svein is succeeded in Denmark by another son of his named Harald, not Harald Hardrada, just to be clear. A lot of important Vikings and Scandinavians had the same or similar names, so it gets to be a bit confusing at times. So Denmark is covered by one son, and the Vikings and the Danes in England call for Canute to be the king of England. The Saxon council, known as the Witten, felt differently. They sent a message to Athelred in Normandy, and basically told him to come back to England because Svein was dead, and it's just his young punk son, Canute, who, while popular, isn't securing the country very quickly because he isn't experienced in kingship. Probably wasn't expecting to take on the job this soon. Athelred manages to assemble an army rather quickly. He leaves Normandy, and he drives Canute out of England. Athelred puts his son Edmund in charge of the force that would defeat Canute. And Edmund would receive the title Ironside. Edmund Ironside. Kind of like Bjorn Ironside. But instead it's a Saxon who is assuming this moniker. Using a title like that is commonly associated with a Scandinavian hero for... Saxon probably rubs a little extra salt in the wound for Canute and the other Danes. So Canute has to leave for now. But I want to point out something while all this is going on. It was an interesting thought I had in regards to Normandy's position on this whole ordeal. So they made a deal with Svein to allow him safe passage and the promise of not being attacked while he was invading England. True. But, Athelred was married to a Norman royalty, Emma. They remained somewhat impartial in the conflict between the Saxons and the Vikings and Danes. It's kind of like being the as impartial as you can third party in a family dispute. You got one family member who's married into another family, but then you also have your cousins from over here. Probably a bad analogy, but it's just what came to mind. So Knut is sent packing to Denmark, but he's not done. He's a clever young man at this point. He needs to raise an army to retake England to reclaim the land his father worked so hard to take. And after hearing stories of the St. Bryce's Day Massacre, Canute probably wouldn't let this go anyway. He probably blames Athelred for what he's been told for so long just as much as his father was blaming Athelred. So Canute goes to his brother Harald and makes the suggestion that they should be co-kings of Denmark. 
Harald tells him that that's not going to happen. But because he's his brother, and in the interest of reclaiming England, Harald offers to let Canute have command of a large portion of his army on the condition that Canute doesn't press claim to Denmark while Harald is alive. They agree. In the year 1015, Canute would assemble an army from all over Europe in his new mission. According to the German chronicler Tietmar of Merseburg, Canute would finally return to conquer England with a fleet of 340 ships, each carrying 80 men. When you do the math, that's over 27,000 warriors. And it's not too unbelievable a number when you consider where all of Canute's soldiers are coming from. And they weren't just Danes from the Danelaw and big Norse countries like Norway, Denmark, and Sweden. He had troops pledged to him from the Balts, which is modern-day Lithuania, the Poles, or Polish if you will, the Vens, modern-day Eastern Germany, as well as from Scotland, in Ireland. This may have been the largest Viking army to come under one banner. Unlike his father Svein, Canute will have a real opponent when his grand army and fleet arrives in England. Edmund Ironside is now a hardened commander himself from his exile with his father Athelred in Normandy, and has confidence because he's already forced Canute to leave once. And Edmund's also the kind of guy who fights alongside his troops. The kind of leader who says that he'd die for his men, and that his men would die for him. It's a worthy opponent for Canute. The war between Edmund and Canute would be an intensity not seen since the days of the great heathen army and Alfred the Great. When Canute arrived in Wessex, the elderman of Mercia, Idric Striona, convinced the now ill and dying Athelred to give him a force of 40 ships to hold off Canute. After getting said 40 ships, Striona switches sides and joins Canute. So with bolstered forces, Canute takes most of Wessex and the western half of Mercia along the Welsh border. Edmund is trying to assemble a response force out of Northumbria and calls to his father to lend him troops. Most of Athelred's troops, for whatever reason, maybe it's because the king was dying, didn't want to join Edmund, and stay to protect the king. While Edmund is trying to work with his father to bring his army north, Canute is marching further north, around Edmund, to then head back south and attack him. Athelred had been convinced that all he needed to do was bring his army to Northumbria, and his son would take care of the conflict. But not long after arriving in Northumbria, he became convinced that London would fall if he wasn't there and he quickly went back south, leaving Edmund outnumbered against Canute. With this display of, let's just call it disunity, 
the Northumbrians quickly pledged to Canute. Also, a familiar face switched sides back to Canute. His old mentor, Thorkel the Tall, and his Yom's Vikings. Canute accepts him back due to their history together, Thorkel being the father figure to Canute. By April of 1016, Athelred would die, and Edmund Ironside would succeed him. Knut was on his way to London, and Edmund would cut him off at the Battle of Sherston. Thorkel used this battle as a chance to prove his loyalty to Knut by taking his Yom's Vikings and fighting on the front against Edmund's forces. Thorkel and his men suffered little losses on their part of the battlefield, cutting down all the Saxons in their path. This loyalty inspired Canute to join the fray in another part of the line, fighting with his own trance-like intensity, likely from his training with the Yom's Vikings in his youth. It was not a one-sided affair here, though, as Edmund was in the thick of it as well, and he inspired the troops around him, pushing the Danes in front of him back. This fighting took place over the course of a couple days. Canute and Edmund, after the, I guess you'd call it the uh, blood haze, the bloodlust, after it kind of fades off of them, they both look around and realize the losses sustained on both sides, and they pull back, at least for the time being. Canute had been blocked from London and lost a large portion of his forces, but it was just as costly for Edmund. A couple months later, Canute again attempted to take London, but was again blocked by Edmund. After being stopped a second time, Idric Striona leaves Canute and rejoins the Saxon forces under Edmund. In October, Canute begins marching his forces back to their ships in Essex. Edmund and Eadric manage to get there before Canute and Thorkel. Here's the decisive battle. The Battle of Asendun. Edmund and Eadric were positioned on the top of a hill, giving them the strategic advantage. By this point, Edmund had the advantage of numbers with Idric on his side. So with the high ground and numbers, it should have been an easy win for Edmund. Canute and the Danes would begin marching up the hill. When they made it about halfway up, Edmund signaled for his army to attack. The sound of the battle was loud enough to be heard in the surrounding villages. Despite being outnumbered, the victory or Valhalla mindset was still in Canute's army, and while they weren't gaining any ground, they didn't lose ground either. No matter your mindset though, your body will eventually tire. And this began to happen to Canute's forces. The Danish lines were beginning to crack. It's at this point in the battle that 
another weird thing happens involving another commonality here. Idrix Triona. He withdraws and leaves Edmund outnumbered. Why he abandoned Edmund isn't exactly clear. It may have been that he was still in league with Canute the whole time, and this was part of some longer strategy. Or, maybe he was unsure of his own future with Edmund if Edmund won, because Striona had turned on Edmund's father, Athelred. Whatever the case is, it's kind of obvious he's just been looking out for himself. So imagine the shock and the rage that is going through the mind of Edmund. This should have been an easy win for him, and now he's been deserted by his ally. It shouldn't be totally surprising, since he was quick to abandon Athelred when Canute first arrived in England. So Edmund attempts one last gamble. Him and his personal guard ride out and join the fray. The numbers game with Striona gone was too much, and by nightfall, Edmund had to retreat. His army was all but destroyed, and he was badly wounded here. He attempts to flee and get to Wales so he can seek allies against Canute, but Canute catches up to him. They have one little skirmish, and then on a small island near Deerhurst, Canute and Edmund meet again, but this time at a negotiation table. To make this negotiation even more interesting, it was being brokered by Eadric Striona, and the agreement that came together was that Canute would rule everything north of the Thames River and Edmund would control everything to the south. The other agreement was that if either of them died, control of the whole country would go to the other. Four to five weeks after the agreement was made, Edmund Ironside dies. The cause, again, isn't known. It could have been that he succumbed to his wounds from the Battle of Asendun. Or, another theory is that he was poisoned. One other theory, and it honestly sounds like something out of Game of Thrones, is that he was killed by an assassin from below when he went to sit on his toilet. Which, if that one is true, I'm sure that was a fun wait for the assassin to crawl into a toilet and wait for the king to sit down. The one who would end up actually being blamed for the death of Edmund was actually not Canute, but Eadric Striona. Canute and the Danes had actually developed a respect for Edmund due to how hard he fought against them. Canute would personally execute Eadric Striona. Canute, by the year 1017, was now king of all England. A year later, 
Canute's brother Harald, died, and Canute would become king of both England and Denmark. By 1027, the people of Norway were not happy with the way they were being ruled by their king, a man named Olaf Haraldsson. Knut would send gold to those who were openly opposing Olaf in order to gain their support. Knut would take a fleet of ships to take out Olaf, and Olaf was unable to put up any kind of serious fight against Knut. Olaf's nobles, let alone his subjects, did not support him. And while Knut did bribe Olaf's nobles, yes, it wasn't that hard of a negotiation because those same nobles' wives were apprehended by Olaf for quote-unquote sorcery. It's likely that they still worshipped the old gods and not the devil in Christianity. So Olaf goes into exile. Then here's a kicker for you. Either Canute's rule was that good, or Olaf ruled so poorly that two years later, after one of Canute's lieutenants dies in a shipwreck who was on the way to govern Norway with Canute's interests, two years later, after that guy dies, Olaf comes back to try to take Norway. When he gets there, there was only one battle that took place. His army against Knut's loyalists and the general population of farmers. The battle did not last long as Olaf's own men killed him, probably realizing it was a lost cause when the commoners wanted nothing to do with him. But now King Knut now known as Canute the Great. He's king of England, Denmark, Norway, and parts of Sweden. Wales, Scotland, and parts of Ireland were vassal states to him, and Normandy and Poland were very supportive allies. Canute now rules an area that history remembers as the North Sea Empire. And now that all the major fighting was finished, and the dust largely settled, it was time to rebuild and repair the damage that was done. Many towns, and particularly the churches of those towns, were on the verge of collapse between the conflicts of Athelred and Spain and Edmund and Canute. Canute, also being a Christian himself, wanted to begin his repentance for all that he had taken part in in this war. He began by commissioning all of the churches that were caught up in the previous conflicts between himself and Edmund, as well as his father and Athelred, to be restored or rebuilt, as well as new churches to be built. Scandinavia as a whole was still only beginning to convert to Christianity despite declarations by Knut's grandfather years ago. It was still going to take time. Knut's approach was not to strangle it, though, 
to strangle the old beliefs and the Norse gods like Olaf would have done. Remember that apprehending of wives and being accused of sorcery? But allow it to phase out, like in the Dane Law. It was this approach that earned Canute the respect and even adoration of those who were still pagan in Scandinavia despite him not being pagan. This relaxed attitude is seen in the poems that were read about him in his court. A Scandinavian poet was called a skald or skald, and these skalds would speak of Canute, saying, quote, The freyr of the noise of weapons has also cast under him Norway. The battle server diminishes the hunger of the Valkyrie's ravens. End quote. The skalds were giving Canute attributes of the pagan gods. Canute only allowed this as long as these poems were Christian messages, as in the same poem they would say, quote, Canute protects the land as the guardian of Byzantium does heaven. The reference to the Byzantine Empire, an Orthodox Christian nation and continuation of the eastern half of the Roman Empire, would have been seen as a huge compliment to Canute. Speaking of Rome, and great timing with Scandinavia being largely subdued, Canute would journey to Rome in 1027 and witness the crowning of the Holy Roman Emperor Conrad II. And Canute was now someone to be taken seriously in Southern Europe as he was, in his words, quote, King of all England, Denmark, Norway, and some of the Swedes. End quote. Despite this lofty spouting of titles, Canute was still on his path of repentance. He attended the Roman church praying not only for the forgiveness of his own sins, but the redemption and well-being of those in his new realm and to bargain with the Pope to reduce costs of appointing bishops in Northern Europe, now his territory. Canute says this in a letter he wrote, quote, I spoke with the Emperor himself and the Lord Pope and the princes there about the needs of all people of my entire realm, both English and Danes, that a juster law and securer peace might be granted to them on the road to Rome and that they should not be straitened by so many barriers along the road and harassed by unjust tolls. And the Emperor agreed, and likewise King Robert who governs most of these same toll gates. And all the magnates confirmed by edict that my people, both merchants and the others who travel to make their devotions, might go to Rome and return without being afflicted by barriers and toll collectors, in firm peace and secure and a just law." End quote. Canute's realm. His North Sea Empire would thrive as an ally of the Holy Roman Empire. But it was not meant to last. Only eight years after his visit to Rome, Canute would die and the empire would collapse.
there was one chance to save it, which is the subject of part two of what I'm calling the end of the age, with the last great Viking king Harald Hardrada, and what I'm liking to call the triple threat match for the future of England. That will be next time. But now it's time to put a bow on this. This was a long episode for my standards, and I still feel like I have not done justice to this story despite my efforts. Like one of my favorite podcasters, Dan Carlin, the host of Hardcore History, he refers to himself as not a historian. The same is definitely to be said of myself, even more so in comparison to Dan, I am simply an enthusiast. I may have gotten little details wrong here or there, but I tried to at least get the broad strokes. Canute, to me, is the example of someone who accomplished great things despite a somewhat troubled family life. His father Svein was absent, especially in Canute's upbringing, those crucial early years, and his father figure, Thorkel, held different religious beliefs. And even though in the end he would return to Canute's side, he did side against him for a period of time. That can be a heartbreaking thing when a member of your family turns on you. Despite this, Canute was a tolerant king who didn't persecute those who still worshipped his culture's pagan heritage and yet made steps to advance Scandinavia by at the same time building Christian churches and nurturing the conversion to Christendom. Canute was arguably the greatest Viking ruler of the Viking Age. To make a comparison to the Greeks, if Svein Forkbeard could be compared to King Philip of Macedon, then King Canute would be the Alexander the Great of the Norse. And like Alexander, Canute's people started to see him almost as a demigod, a divine figure with divine power. Canute became aware of this, and how he squashes this is my favorite story about him and how I will end this episode. Normally it's with a quote, but this time, a short little story. Canute called for his subjects in England to meet him at the shoreline and place his throne on the beach. The tide was coming in. His people believed that he could simply speak a command and that he could stop the sea. So what he does is this. He sat on his throne and said to the sea, quote, You are subject to me, as the land on which I am sitting is mine, and no one has resisted my overlordship with impunity. I command you, therefore, not to rise on to my land, nor to presume to wet the clothing or limbs of your master, end quote. The tide came in all the same, and got Canute's feet and clothes wet. 
With a smile on his face, he sits up, removes his crown, turns to the crowd of people who are shocked that the tide did not stop for him. He looks at them and says this, quote, Let all the world know that the power of kings is empty and worthless, and there is no king worthy of the name save him whose will heaven, earth, and the sea obey eternal laws." End quote. Thanks for listening.